Power has a God-given role in human relationships and institution, but it can lead to abuse when used in unhealthy ways. Today on the podcast, I'm chatting with Dr. Diane Langberg, practicing psychologist and the author of Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. You're listening to The Courage Cast, a show to equip and empower women to live bravely. Each week we'll share coaching conversations and stories of women who are willing to face their fear and pursue their purpose. Here's your host, life coach, author, and your secret weapon. Hey friend, welcome to The Courage Cast. My name is Andrea Crisp, and I am thrilled that you're joining me today for this very special episode. This is going to be a bit of a departure from what we've been talking about over the past few weeks. But for some time now, I've been wanting to address the topic of spiritual abuse because I have seen how destructive it has been in the North American church, in my life personally, and in so many of the people I know. And I believe that when we take a holistic approach to our lives, then we can see that healing is possible and we can thrive in every area. And healing manifests in many different ways. So when we operate out of healing, freedom manifests in areas of our life, like relationships, business, confidence, and our health. So maybe you have struggled with this issue, and maybe it's something that is a hot topic on your mind, but perhaps you've never really even thought about it before. But before we get into the conversation, I want to preface the conversation by saying this. If you're in a place where you've been traumatized or abused by an authority figure in your life, this may be triggering. So over the past few years, I've been on a personal journey that has led me to not only deconstruct, but also decolonize my faith. And this came on the heels of several painful ministry experiences when I was pastoring and volunteering in the evangelical church. And although I've come a long way, Thanks to therapy, coaching, loads of inner healing, talking to friends, and really just allowing God to speak to me. I know that I have a long way to go and so much to learn. And one of the books that really helped me was Dr. Langberg's book called Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. She gave me so much context and language to much of what I experienced. And there were many years where I felt so alone in what I had gone through. So reading the book actually gave me hope in my faith for what was possible in my personal healing. Just a bit about Dr. Diane Langberg, because she's pretty phenomenal. Dr. Diane Langberg is globally recognized for her 45 years of clinical work with trauma victims. She has trained caregivers on six continents to respond to trauma and the abuse of power. She also directs her own counseling practice in Jennington, Pennsylvania, Diane Langberg, PhD and Associates, which includes 15 therapists with multiple specialties. Among Dr. Langberg's book are Counsel for Pastors' Wives, Counseling Survivors of Sexual Abuse, On the Threshold of Hope with Accompanying Workbook, In Our Lives First, Meditations for Counselors, and Suffering the Heart of God, How Trauma Destroys and Christ Restores. Dr. Langberg is co-leader of the Global Trauma Recovery Institute housed at Biblical Theological Seminary. She's on the board of Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in a Christian Environment. She serves as co-chair for American Bible Society's Trauma Advisory Council. 
Dr. Langberg is a recipient of the Distinguished Alumna Achievements for Taylor University, the American Association of Christian Counselors Caregiver Award, the Distinguished President's Award, and the Philadelphia Council of Clergy Christians Service Award. She is married and has two sons and four grandchildren. Okay, that was a mouthful. This woman is so well-renowned in the space and has so much to offer our generation. So I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed learning from Dr. Langberg. Dr. Langberg, I'm so excited to have you on the Courage Cast today. It is my like absolute honor to chat with you. I have been following uh, your Twitter feed. I am also just finished reading your book, which I highly recommend for people to read called Redeeming Power, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. And this is something that I have been talking with my audience about, also my friends, people who I do life with. This has been kind of one of the hot topics. So I am very, very honored that you are on the Courage Cast today. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. Now, of course, I want people to get to know you. I love for my guests to just share a little bit about themselves because I feel like I I really can't do justice to tell about you. You're you. And uh, so I'd love to know like a little bit about you and as well who you serve and and who it is that you're really interested in in speaking to. Well, um, I've been around for a while and uh, came to Philadelphia in 1970 after just graduating from college to pursue a master's in psychology, which then turned into a PhD in psychology. (laughs) And um, it was a time when there were very few women in the field. I was the only one in my doctoral program. And the Christian world thought I was doing, making a terrible decision. (laughs) My gifts were for my husband and children, neither of which I had, (laughs) and uh, I was wrong to get a degree in psychology and have a job like that. I obviously didn't listen and um, proceeded to begin work in a university counseling center and also in a private practice with a Christian psychologist and ended up with many females coming to me because of my gender. Um, I was in my early 20s. They didn't come because I knew what I was doing. And um, I began to hear all kinds of stories. My father used to do weird things to me. Um, My husband hits me sometimes um, and began to understand. I was also working with Vietnam vets and began to realize that the symptoms the women had and the symptoms the vets had were quite similar. Uh, Trauma was not a word in the psychology world at the time. Post-traumatic stress disorder was not a category until 1980. Okay. So I just began to be the student of the ones that came to learn from me in terms of what trauma is and what it does to human beings and uh, how it, it just defaces people, It you know, and how a lot of it, certainly happens in war zones, which got more attention, but a lot of it also happens in homes and churches. And people often ask me what made me choose to work with trauma, and I always say I didn't. I didn't know it was a thing to choose. It chose me. Yeah. Um, 
So it's been quite a ride and I've learned a great deal and been just taught many wonderful things by people who have suffered greatly and been privileged to walk with them. So your whole journey was, if I, if I understand correctly, was really influenced by what other people went through and them coming to you and, and asking you questions and presenting what was going on in their lives. Yes. And describing things to me I had not experienced, I had never heard of in graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in my doctoral program, one of my mentors, a, a woman who was a psychologist uh, professor, was a, a part of a group of women in Philadelphia who began to establish women organized against rape. And it was like the first of the first. Right. Um, so there, there really wasn't anything there. And I think I say at the beginning of the book that you mentioned, you know, sitting with somebody who was an incest survivor uh, was trafficked, so that was not a word at the time, um, and saying to her, I don't know how to help you. You have to first teach me what it's like to be you. And then I'll take it away. What a position to be in for you to then say, I don't have the answer, but let me help you find the answer. Yes. And, and she did. doing the work. That's she did. A, I think sometimes we underestimate the power of that, of the fact that, you know, when people do come to us with their problems or things that are going on, that if we don't have the answer, instead of turning a blind eye or going, okay, well, I'm sorry, I can't help you. I can't do anything. Or as many people said, you must have made this up. Exactly. Yes. Uh, there are so many probably stories of people who are listening that can already even just say, okay, there's tra- been trauma in my life, whether it's been in my family, whether it's been in a relationship, in the church, within a parachurch organization, any place really where there's an abuse of power, which are many, many places. One of the things that, you know, I was really, as I was looking through your book this morning, and I want to just kind of read a little bit of a portion, but this is what I've learned for myself in, in being in ministry and also being a person who is abused, spiritually abused within a ministry context. I had to go back uh, through all of the the years that I went through things and I had to see, well, what did I also do to other people being in a role of leadership and power? And when I was thinking about that this morning, I recognized that when we're talking to women, especially who are women in powerful positions and roles, as much as, as it is important for us to to understand and recognize the trauma and the abuse that we have, you know, suffered. It's also important for us to recognize where have we perpetuated it as well. So you say in your book, our influence pours out perpetually, but if those in authority refuse to help others turn a deaf ear and harden themselves to the needs of others, then rejection, not care becomes the predominant influence. And then just down the page, 
you're talking about God's directive. And you say, nowhere does he call humans to rule over each other. The man is not told to rule over the woman. Neither is the woman to rule over the man. They are to rule together in a duet over all else God has created. And I love that. And I think it's so important. That's kind of where I want for us to start today uh, in the conversation and understanding not only if we've felt like we've been in a in a position of being spiritually abused or um, watching someone else go through it, but also how we are maybe complicit in that as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and how do we change? So I, I think that's a really, really important thing, because I know for myself, like there, there was a lot of soul searching, even for me to go, what have I done also? that perpetuated this type of behavior. So the one thing I I really want to ask you is, first of all, what prompted you to write the book? (laughs) Um, Well, close to 50 years of clinical work. (laughs) Um, Plus traveling the world and doing a lot of teaching in places where trauma has been high. Part of what it took me a long time, it took me a long time to begin to understand about power, first of all. You know, I got taught about abuse, and then I had to learn about power, and then I had to learn about systems. And the fact that an entire system that carries God's name and says it's doing God's purpose can actually be doing terrible damage to God's people and others and how systems work and how when we turn the light on, say, on a leader in a system, the system feels threatened. And so cover-ups and denials and defense and truth is not welcome, the light is not welcome. So it's, it's sort of like I got taken through it in stages. And in recent years, probably the last 15 or more, a lot of the times I've been asked, asked to speak have been about abuse in the church. And so I began talking about things like deception, which I write about, and power and systemic abuse in my, you know, public speaking. And um, somebody came to me, editor of Rome Brazos, basically, and said, you need to, we need a book about this. Mm -hmm. And it needs to be written by a woman. And it needs to be written by you. (laughs) (laughs) So I obeyed, you know, a few months to think about it because I knew I'd be sticking my neck out. Uh, And also talking about concepts that the church is not very familiar with, except by doing them, but not by understanding them and how damaging they are. When you say, you know, it's interesting that you say that because sticking your own neck out, like this is... This is something that as a woman, you've not only like blazed a trail by going to graduate school and getting your PhD when there were not very many women doing it at the time when you were not married or didn't have children. And that was a big deal. And now you're stepping out and talking about something that is very being uncovered right now at an alarming rate. Uh, Like it is everywhere. It is in politics. It is in the church. It is in organizations. Um, How does that feel for you to kind of be one of the people who's uh, a mouthpiece to what's actually happening? 
Um, well, it's a little intimidating, and it's certainly um, humbling, um, and certainly keeps me focused, because I just wrote a book on power and have a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and how how do you do that then? Like, how do you do you just try to stay centered in what your work is or how, how do you stay in a place of humility in your own life to do this work? Well, I think the first answer to that is that the years that I've had behind a closed door with all kinds of trauma um, have shaped, those years have shaped me in ways I couldn't begin to express. Uh, and I guess in some ways prepared me. And I learned how to be in a place where I didn't know what I was doing, um, but was also a powerful place. You know, a therapist is in a position of power. And if somebody's been brutalized, your power is even greater because they don't even know they are a self, let alone how to exercise that self. So I, I think God took me to school for a long time. And so I think the things that I have learned and done there uh, are the same things that I draw on now, but of course have to be vigilant because they manifest differently. But part of my, my life has been about coming to understand why Jesus cracked whips and turned tables over and wishing somebody would let me do that too. Um, to also coming to understand that that place that he did that to twice, he loved. Hmm. And so part of writing the book and having the position that I have is also from the place of loving the body of Christ and wanting to see her love him and follow him the way he meant for us to, not with big numbers and fame and tons of books and money. And that's not how we love him. We love him by being with the people in his body who need him and we need him to help them and be helped ourselves. So it, it's, it's love of him ultimately. But you, if you love the head, you have to love the body. You know, if, if you, yeah. you, I, I write in much of my writing about my father's decades long illness, you know, and he was a very bright, capable man and retained a lot of that most of the time. He was sick. But loving him meant helping him tie his shoes, loving him meant helping him walk. Loving him meant getting help when he fell down and he was too big to lift up. And so I see that as a lesson in terms of the body of Christ. If I love him, I love his body. And I help it where it's broken. And that's what he did. And that's what he calls us to do. Mm -hmm. I love that that story of, of, your, of your dad. I know that, you know, some people have been wounded within the church. And, and I'm going to get to a, a big question about, you know, the difference between Christendom and following Christ. And that is something that I'm still trying to grapple with myself, even after 
um, being five years old and saying the sinner's prayer and then being in ministry and all the things that I did over my whole entire adult life. And, um, but I still now, I think I question things more now than I've ever questioned in my entire life, which I loved reading your book because I think it just really brought me to, I'm like, I thought to myself, now, if I had learned this versus some of the things I had learned, what would I've done differently? So I think that's so important. Um, so I want to talk about like, what does a healthy power dynamic within a church, within an organization or relationship, what does that actually look like versus maybe an unhealthy power dynamic? Well, the short answer is it looks like God. <laughs> <laughs> but if you just take two of his attributes, he is love and he is truth. He is all power. That is always love and always truth. And he does not protect the human systems. I mean, you think about the synagogue in the Old Testament, the temple. It got blown to smithereens. You think about the one in Jerusalem. It got blown to smithereens. He does not preserve our systems when they do not honor him. Because when they do not honor him, he sees them as destroying the people that he loves. So he lets them get blown up, basically. And I think all of this exposure in the church today is part of God letting it get blown up. He's, his voice is in that exposure, saying, this is what you look like. This is what you're doing, and it has nothing to do with me. So this is the light from him shining on it. So anybody who holds power, whether it's a parent a teacher or a therapist or a doctor or a pastor, doesn't matter. That power has to be full of love and full of truth with the purpose of being used with vulnerable people to bless them in the name of Jesus, mm -hmm. which is not just a verbal thing. It's a right. character thing. I've heard many times, even from the pulpit, from pastors that I have, you know, been under say, you know, well, God is going to be, you know, judging me and I am not judged by anyone else, but God, and I'm held to a higher standard, but all, you know, and, and at first I thought, okay, well, I, you know, I believe in this authority model at the time. And and then I was thinking, okay, well, if that's the case, then that person has to be accountable to whomever they're being accountable. But oftentimes they're not being accountable. And like, does that, is that even a thing that, you know, that pastors can say, well, I'm just in judgment to God and not accountable to the church or to the board or elders or who, whatever kind of uh, church it is. Well, last I checked, there are no exceptions to the fact that every Christian leader, pastor or otherwise, is a sinner. <laughs> a ruined sinner. Yeah. Capable of great deception, capable of doing harm to the sheep in the name of Jesus, <laughs> baptized, but, but doing harm under those things. And to say that I have no accountability to anybody other than God 
is to say I have no accountability because that's not how God treats humans. Right. He, there's, there aren't people, he says, never mind, you don't have to do anything with them. They're all called to righteousness. And part of the way he calls us is through our fellow men and women. You know, it's like you walk by somebody and you step on their toe, they say, ouch, now what are you going to do? Keep walking? Hit it harder? Tell them they made it up? They're crazy? That didn't really happen? No. <laughs> you know, if you're full of truth, you did step on their foot. And if you're full of love, you will stop to see what you can do to help it. There's no exceptions in the Christian world to that. There's no one who's not a sheep. Right. I mean, you Why may be... is it so hard for for them then to say I'm wrong or I have done wrong or I didn't listen or I've not put you first? Why Why is it that they're... Well, I think a lot of humans think that shows weakness. I think it shows strength to tell the truth, especially truth that you don't want to be true and other people don't either. Um. But I, I think also, you know, a lot of pastors have been put in positions where that's been required of them. You know, there are systems that want them to be up above everything and be unquestionable because systems, not just people, can be authoritarian. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they want it to be okay and everything fine because then more people come and more money gets put in the coffers and more fame and all those things. So the other sheep are feeding off of that lie, basically. And it's not often that you, when you think about somebody looking for a, a hire for a pastor, that one of the requirements is humility. But I just, we don't say that. But we can say that about Jesus. Right. Who holds all power. So we have made power self-centered. We have made it self-protective. We have made it um, a goal rather than likeness to Christ. You talk about in your book about when maybe young pastors are being um, hired. They're, they're, you know, being hired or promoted within the church. Sometimes they're from a different space sometimes they're from within the, the the church already but you talk about how oftentimes we're looking for the gifts we're looking for what can you do and so little is looked at when it comes to well what is their character is that also a byproduct of this same thing like you know are they looking for somebody who's going to be easily groomed through the system well, I think that, first of all, if we have a leader of whatever organization who's very gifted verbally, you know, personality-wise, all of those things, um, it pleases us. We like to listen to them. Mm -hmm. Number two, it makes us look good because we got somebody really good. You know, so we sort of feed off that... Um, and we think that gifts, like verbal capacity, mm -hmm. which is necessary if you're going to be behind a pulpit, right. but we think that those gifts tell us about the heart, and they do not. 
They are not the fruit of the heart. The gifts were put in you when you were in your mother's womb. <laughs> They're just there. There are people with the same gifts who are sociopaths. You know, it's not, there, there's all kinds of ways that gifts get used. used. But the, the character of the heart demonstrated in the life over time is what we should be looking for. You can have tremendous knowledge, all kinds of degrees, verbal power, emotional power, you know, a presence that people are drawn to, that make people come to church and all of that stuff, and not have a heart that's like Christ. And everybody assumes you do. So once you're accused of not, they say it can't be so because look at these other things. But the other things are not demonstrations of the heart. Yeah, I think that is an important an important part of any kind of leadership role is what is our heart towards the people that we're helping, that we say we're serving and that we are, you know, bringing to Christ or that we are helping in a parachurch organization, you know, whether it's, you know, for salvation or just in a helping capacity. I know as a coach, you know, I see so many coaches rising to this, you know, uh, space that's high in fame and, you know, I'm able to do this. And, and, and I take a look maybe at, well, how are you treating the people that you're actually coaching and what are you looking to do? And, and I see so many similarities within what I've experienced in the church and, what I see, you know, just even in my own industry, which mm-hmm. I think is, has made me stop and go, okay, Andrea, if you've been in this situation within the church, you really have to watch yourself within your own uh, capacity and what you're doing. And yeah. I've had, I've had it modeled really well, and I've had it modeled very badly in my life. And, mm-hmm. and there, there are people who I've worked for who I think, you know, are the best of the best and they weren't perfect, but they were willing to, to tell us when they weren't. And that I love, but I think so many people get hurt in the church or wounded and then really just want to turn away from any kind of belief system, Christianity, uh, they they want to completely discount almost everything that they've learned. And I think one of the questions I really want to ask you is how do we regain that confidence or come back um, when there has been an abusive situation in the church? Maybe, you know, if we've gone through something or walked through someone with someone who has gone through it, like I know personally I have, mm-hmm. um, how do we how do we come back from that? Not everybody does. Um, I, I think a couple of things. I, I use three words when I talk to people who've been traumatized. You know, domestic abuse, rape, whatever. The three things are required for some level of healing. One is talking. You need somebody safe to talk to, to process what happened what it's done to you, whatever, how you responded, why you responded that way. So talking, tears, you need to grieve. It's worth grieving over. And time, you know, it's not like there's a button you push and <laughs> and uh, everything's okay. And those three things happen for people at different rates. 
you know, if you if you're on the staff of a church and it's been a very abusive situation and you grew up with sexual abuse and domestic abuse in the home, they're wounding you where you've already been wounded. <laughs> and it will have effects that are different and greater in some ways than somebody who never experienced any abuse until they got to that church. So it's always an individual thing. I think also we, we have to teach people, back to the grief thing, how to lament. The church doesn't do lament very well anymore. And I, I've learned through not only just years of doing therapy, but traveling the world. I mean, how do you help Rwandans who live through a genocide grieve? Or Cambodians grieve? You know, so when you stand in places like that, you realize why there's lament. You know, where were you, God? The answer doesn't come. You don't know. So I, I think we need to let ourselves in situations like that to lament. Many people feel the need to disconnect from the institutional church for a while. I understand that. Or some sort of disconnect and stick their head in the door on Sunday morning somewhere, but they don't participate in the group or anything like that. So those are individual decisions, but you're, you're trying to learn a whole different way of thinking about what happened, about how it's affected you, and about who you choose to be in response to that. You know, what do you want to do? How do you, what kind of character do you want to have going forward? And uh, it takes time. It's hard work. Not a quick fix. Friend, I know how hard it can be to go through a faith deconstruction, because I've been there, to really reevaluate everything you once learned throughout your life in a spiritual context, and to apply that to every area of your life, whether it be relationships, whether it be your family, your business, and even living out your divine purpose. And when I went through my own faith deconstruction, I wasn't really sure where to turn and how I could holistically approach the new way of being and how I could integrate what I was learning with who I was becoming. And I want to help you to align your mindset with your divine purpose, even as you're unpacking all of these new ideas, these new ways of being. So I'd love to chat with you. So if you want to schedule a free 30-minute strategy call with me, I would love to help you unpack this part of your life and see if you can't move forward in a way that feels really aligned and healthy with your own faith deconstruction journey. So to do that, go to andreacrisp.ca forward slash schedule, and you can book a free 30-minute strategy session with me. Hope to talk soon thinking to myself of the conversations that I've had to have with friends in ministry over the past few years and trying to say to them, you know, I can't go back. Like I can't, I've even said to my therapist, I can't read the Bible because it's triggering because, and you know, one of the things she said to me is that, you know, sometimes you need to stop and because the, what you learned through that text mm -hmm. was a lie. Actually, yeah. And so you've believed that. And so now every time you hear that, you think it is out of that context. And 
and so you're so sometimes there is time and space and and explaining that to friends is hard explaining that to to people who think well I'll just pray for you Andrea which is even more maddening to me yes well sometimes you want to say please don't (laughs) yeah (laughs) because I think to myself I'm like I I think I feel like I'm better off you know, uh, sometimes that's what I really just want to be saying is I, I feel like I'm better off not being there than I was when I'm there. And now in in no way, shape or form, even personally, people who follow this podcast, they know the journey that I'm on. Am I like ready to be back there? I don't even know what that looks like anymore, to be honest with you. Um, but one of the things that this year, or say, I would say maybe 2020 really, really opened my eyes to. And when you're talking about lament, Mm -hmm. and I really did not understand that concept, I still probably don't understand it really. But to watch my black and BIPOC friends go through the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, as it has been established, and really, you know, gaining momentum, both in America and in Canada, um, my eyes were opened to things that I really didn't understand, that I had to uh, get a lot of education around. And in understanding when when they said, you know, like, we're grieving and, and, and you have to let us grieve, that lament for, for, the, for the community who has been abused because of their race, that's a whole even other space. Yes, it is. Yes, it and, is. Very sacred space. Yeah. And and how, like, I don't even know, like, I think there's so many places that there's an abuse of power, whether it's, you know, women, whether it's sexual, whether it's uh, a racial issue, and, and this, how do we, how do we, I don't know, I guess come back to, Jesus, as you say, in the book, when all of this is happening, when all of these things are unfolding around us, um, and really understanding the personhood of Jesus and the Godhead, I guess, of Jesus as well. Well, let me say a couple of practical things first, because I'm sure a lot of people that are listening don't really know what a lament is. They not heard one in church or whatever. If they go to the book that I wrote before, Suffering in the Heart of God, How Trauma Destroys and Christ Restores, in the appendix is the lament that I have used around the world. And it happens to be nothing but scripture. But it's things that oftentimes, if we say them in church, people will tell us we're being naughty. (laughs) So it's an interesting experience for people to read scripture that if they just said it personally, somebody would tell them they didn't have enough faith. But it's scripture. (laughs) Can you explain it just a little bit to us? Well, it's things like, how long, oh Lord, how long? You know, in the evangelical world, you could very easily get a response to that that says, well, where's your faith? So it sometimes helps people. And and you, you think about people in Cambodia or Rwanda or many of the other places I've been. I mean, that's just... The question is how long, and the same thing with with uh, African Americans here. You, you you say how long, oh Lord? It's been generations. How long? 
And that's, that's a question in the scripture for people to use, and there is no condemnation for it. Hmm. So I think it's helpful for people to just see a concrete, even if just one or two pieces of it, help them articulate and help them over the hump of, am I being bad to say this? No, you're not. And I mean, Jesus, Jesus lamented, and he did everything perfectly. So, you know, he, he, uh, and he wept, wept over Jerusalem after he turned over the tables. So there are all kinds of things that we can do that help us let them happen and not have that reaction that we are afraid other people will have. But sometimes we also have for ourselves and shut ourselves up because we feel bad or guilty. The other thing I would say, and this is another just practical thing, it wasn't an accident that Adam and Eve were placed in a garden. And everything was perfect. And so I think when people can't go to church, often I have found they find quiet peace and a reorienting in nature. There are expressions in nature of what, what it looks like when things die. There are expressions of beauty that you really don't have words to speak about. Um, just all kinds of things. And so I've often encouraged my clients through the years to find a place to sit, to walk, or to take pictures or whatever, as a place to be quiet, safe, and absorb beauty that comes from God. Mm -hmm. It's not organized church, but it comes from God. It was his idea to begin with, and we still have it. So I think that those are ways for people who get all tied up in knots about, I can't go to church, I can't make sense out of this, I can't hear this scripture read because I think this, and all of that. And then they end up being their own worst enemy in their own grieving. And so there are ways sometimes to get over those humps and still do the grieving and the distancing and all those things that are required for understanding and growth and healing. Mm -hmm. Doing that will in part help them see Jesus. That's what he did. He went up the mountain and looked at the stars after a terrible time in Jerusalem. I mean, the, he, he accessed the same things. And so I think part of what is most healing to people who've been through trauma and abuse and disregard and all of those things is to see he walked around in skin to tell us the truth about God. If he'd been abused in a church or a system that names his name, you've been told a lie about God. Either overtly or subtly, you've been told a lie. He will only tell you the truth. And so understanding that, that when he touched the lepers, when he crossed the road, when he called the children forward, all of those things that are so little, that's what he looks like. He didn't look like the big Pharisees in the big temple making money. 
he wasn't there. They didn't look like him. He doesn't look like them. And separating him in tiny little ways like that over time is part of how people heal and see him for who he says he is and is. Not from the playbook they came away from. Mm -hmm. That doesn't tell the truth about who he is. Which would then mean we can ask questions when we're in a, a circumstance or a church where it's not leading towards what you're saying. Yes. It's okay to say, this doesn't seem to be measuring up to... This doesn't look like Jesus. Yeah. And I think that that has been difficult for people to, in a, in, a, in any kind of church, to question. Some people are, are obviously better at it than others, because <laughs> um, I know people who do. But, you know, there there's, off, there's also things that happen that we just stay silent about and, you know, talk about in your book about complicity and how that affects um, people in, in, that are have been abused. Um, can you just talk a little bit about uh, what you talk about in your book about complicity? Well, I think, first of all, that all complicity is not created equal. Um, I, I think, first of all, people are complicit because they don't see what they see. They've been so taught that the human system is of God, whether it is or not, that to question it is to be against God. And they don't want to be against God, That's which is a good thing, but they don't understand. And so there is complicity that sort of comes from being indoctrinated in a way of thinking about things, such as Christendom, as opposed to the person of Christ, that I think leads to some. There is also complicity because um, this is my church. It's doing well. I like it here. I'm comfortable here. I get honor here, all those things. And we defend. We, we circle the wagons. And we won't look because we want to protect the place, but it's, it's protecting the externals and not wanting to explore. And then there's complicity that's just downright flat out, I choose to ignore this even though I know it happened. Mm -hmm. So it's on a, all things human are on a continuum, you know, not all complicity is created equal. Um, and, and I think part of what I would add to that is one of the things I, I teach is that all abuse, every kind of abuse is also spiritual abuse. Yes. Because it, it's abuse means to, to mistreat somebody, to, to use them in a wrong way, to feed off them, whatever. You can't do that and not do damage to a soul. This is not possible. <laughs> and so all abuse is spiritual abuse, which when you start thinking about abuse in a church gets very confused for people. Because they'll say, you know, you're abusing the leadership or you're, you know, and they don't understand that, that abuse has been done to their souls. And so it shuts them up and silences them and confuses them. And they don't say. They walk around with these woundings. Uh, so I remember uh, a friend of mine who who confided in, in a leadership 
um, t- person on the ch- in the church about um, an assault that had happened to her. And it was handled so badly that some of the friends that she had came to me and said, Andrea, this is what happened in leadership here at this place. And I was so dumbfounded and I thought to myself, I don't even know what to do about now. Like she's, you know, said this has happened to her and then they've treated her this way and everything just slowly unraveled from that, you know, uh, and is still unraveling in the, in this particular circumstance. But um, it, to me, uh, I thought just even, you know, silencing her Mm. in what has happened and it even triggered me to to realize where I have been silenced, whether it was, you know, through an assault when I was younger, when or through just, you know, not allowing me to use my voice, silencing me from saying things, from speaking, you know, what I thought to be true. And so often we don't speak the the truth because we are so afraid that we will be silenced and and women are not speaking up what would you say to to women who have been in in that position whether it's through uh sexual assault any of any kinds of assault in that realm or you know even in the church well if something has happened to you in the church such as a sexual abuse incident or multiple whatever the first thing you have to do is find a safe place and a safe person. I do not advise women or men in that position to just stand up and talk to somebody because the odds are they will not get a good response and they will get protection of the system and they will have their sanity questioned or their spirituality or both. So um, I think it's very important to find somebody outside the system who understands these things, whether it's a therapist or somebody you know who's been through it and has, you know, healed in many ways or something, where you can tell the story and find out uh, what a refuge would be for you, what telling would look like, and how to do it in the way that protects you the most. Don't do it by yourself, all of those things. There, I'm on the board of grace. There are organizations that... Um, work with victims in places like that to help them deal with these things in ways that protect them. Um, And I think oftentimes victims want to tell quickly because they want it to stop. They want to tell quickly because they're worried it's happening to other people, and it often is, all of those things. And they end up not being safe at all. And so they end up with more wounds, Um, And it's not selfish to get yourself out of the fire before you tell everybody there's a fire. You know, it's not. (laughs) So uh, I I think that's the number one step. Because then if the response is abominable, you have a safe place. Mm -hmm. And it often is. It often is an abominable response. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've found. You know, and I think I, I'm grappling with that. And that is personally where I've had so much of my own hurt issues and heart issues because, you know, and I, I'm going to get to, you know, something that I think is really important here 
at the end to just wrap up. But I know personally, you know, feeling called into the ministry at 15 years old and, you know, my whole aim as a worship pastor and a worship leader for me and then as a young adult and youth pastor as well during the time that I was in full-time ministry was I had a desire to connect people to God. That was my aim. Uh, I loved, I love music. I still do to this time. I actually, to, to rate, as of right now, I still can't listen to worship music because that's triggering to me. Um, and there's only very few people that I can listen to at this point, but, you know, feeling that disconnect from the church, um, for me and the, this place that I wanted to serve, I didn't understand the difference between what this organization or system of the church is and Christ and Christendom and Christ. And I think that is even where I'm grappling with is like, how do I come to terms? And, and that's the big question, I think, that I want to kind of just hit on as we close today, but is what is the difference between Christendom and Christ. Christendom is the global, down through the ages, human system that was created to some extent based on the gospel, which does not mean there weren't many, many people who participated in that and set things up and whatever uh, that didn't love Christ thoroughly and do that well. History is full of people like that. There, My friends always tease about me because I, I love to read, but I particularly like to read what they call the old dead guys, <laughs> <laughs> which are theologians like George MacDonald and um, G. Campbell Morgan and whatever. Um, so that I'm well aware that there were those who fostered that system in ways that would please our Father. However, you put human beings in things that are growing and building, and they get in there and want a piece of the pie, and they want to make it bigger so that it makes them look... I mean, it's, you know, to the point where Christendom was a participant in the Nazi Holocaust. Hmm. Christendom... Pastors literally opened their churches in Rwanda for people to flee to during the massacre of the genocide, shut the door, locked them in, and walked away and let them get killed. They're pastors. They literally fed them to the wolves. You know, I stood in a church where the bones are still on the floor. They left them there as a memorial or christened them. So what that means, of course, is that Christendom cannot be trusted to be true. Are there very fine leaders in it? Yes. Are there leaders who are trustworthy? Absolutely. Have I learned from them? I would not be the same person had I not. I've happened to have been in a church where I've had three pastors who are, have been godly men who have cared well for me. It's a small church, just for the record. But um, <laughs> I was just about to ask, I'm like, please tell me where this church is. <laughs> but the point is, it, it, I'm not saying all these terrible things are happening in Christendom all the time everywhere. They're not. 
but human beings get a hold of them. I mean, look at what human beings have done to the family. Look at what human beings have done to sex. I mean, everywhere you look, we've ruined it. And many times we call it by good things having ruined it. But it's an abomination to God and it looks nothing like him and it's doing damage to his sheep. So you can have fire in your bones about that and should, Jesus did. That's how come he cracked, uh, cracked the whips and turned the tables over. But he also loved people <laughs> and wanted them to be safe and honored and cared for and wanted them to love him. So I think part of the work after, particularly after being vilely wounded by Christendom, part of the work becomes not becoming like them. Mm. Oh, that's good. Because we become like them if we turn around and hate the church. They hated any flaw that made them look bad. We end up hating them in return. So we, we don't want to drink the Kool-Aid. We want to tell the truth, which is scary. We want to not be complicit, which is risky. We want to bring truth and love, which is of God, and not become like Christendom, either by joining with it and agreeing with it and hiding things and everything else, or by leaving it and hating the people in it. That is so powerful. Just even thinking about it, I'm at a loss for words, but I think it is so true and needed is not becoming like what you've what you've experienced. Yes. Yes. And your, your reaction to it. Yes. It's yeah. contagious. Yeah. And I and I recognize even, you know, just throughout this year. Uh, 2020 and early 2021 is so many things are happening in the world and politically and you know it extends racially extends in evangelical church I mean you know it is very very widespread and I think that it is causing so many people to question and um, and react so poorly to one another that it really is damaging um, the name of Christ when I think he really doesn't need our help anyways. <laughs> he, he's a-okay on, on his own uh, without tr us trying to uh, come to his defense. Uh, uh, you know, I am just so honored um, to, I, I think I have so much to learn. Um, I, I thank you for your work. I thank you for um, taking those risks and, and, asking the hard questions and sitting and holding space for people while they lamented as well and and doing the work with them i think that um being able to access your work and and you and what you are are teaching us um this next generation i think is so important in the healing process and and I just want to say thank you. I feel I feel very emotional actually, but um, I I just want to say thank you. Well, you're welcome. Uh, it truly is a privilege to share what I've learned and long to see happen. Well, so. I hope that we can carry out what you what you are doing, 
um, in a way that would uh, just really honor Christ and and in being the work that you've done. So thank you, Dr. Langberg, for being on the podcast today. Quite welcome. The big takeaway for me in this conversation was probably when Dr. Langberg shared that every kind of abuse is spiritual abuse. I think that really stuck out to me the most because I've always just considered that different types of abuse would affect us in certain ways. But in reality, every abuse actually affects us spiritually. And that was really eye-opening for me and gave me a perspective on what happens when there's an abuse of power in our lives, whether it's in childhood, compounded through our family of origin, the church, relationships, the workplace, or even in a moment of crisis. I think we've only scratched the surface on this conversation, but I know I'm taking away so much with me to unpack and process. And friend, I want to encourage you that if you've experienced any kind of abuse in your life and you're not already seeking help, please consider finding a trusted therapist in your area or online so that you can start the process of what has happened in your own life and really get the healing that you need. I know for me, therapy has been transformative in my healing process and has helped me to understand how I can move forward in my own life as I continue to heal. So I want to thank Dr. Langberg for being a guest on the podcast. I mean, what an honor to have talked with her. She's an amazing teacher and role model. Of course, all of her information will be available in the show notes so you can connect with her as well as purchase any of her books. And she's kind of a rock star on Twitter, so you might want to follow her over there as well. Friend, we are going to be continuing this conversation over the next few weeks. I'll be sharing a little bit more of my own story and an update on my own faith deconstruction and where I'm at now. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, remember, you have everything you need to live bravely. If you like this episode of The Courage Gas, we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a rating and review, and while you're there, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Original music and production by Stephen Krillick.